This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast with me, Kim Ann Curtin, and Lucas Peterson. I am very excited today because I absolutely love this woman's message. She has multiple messages, but I love all her messages, but especially the one that I first got exposed to her for, which is her book called Do Nothing. And I want to read the subtitle because it's so important. Uh, But of course, it just came off my Kindle, which was already prepped. So you'll have to say it for me. Celeste Headley, thank you for being here. (laughs) Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Celeste in addition to just how much I adore her and respect her. Uh, She is an award-winning journalist. She's a professional speaker, best-selling author of another excellent book of hers, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. The book we're going to be probably focusing on today but I'm sure we're going to get into that as the other one about we need to talk, is do nothing, how to break away from overworking, overdoing, and underliving. Celeste is also the co-host of the weekly series Retro Report on PBS, and she's also the host of Georgia's public radio uh, every weekday called On Second Thought. And these you, of course, can get online uh, any place you want. She's the co- uh, she also has uh, a TED Talk that I can't strongly recommend enough. It's only uh, 10 minutes long, literally, actually 12. But if you actually look at the content, it's probably nine minutes. So you can't say you don't have time for this one. 10 ways to have a better conversation. It's had over 30 million views. Celeste's work and her insights have been featured on Today, Psychology Today, uh, Inc. Magazine, NPR Time, Essence Magazine, L, BuzzFeed Salon, Parade, and now on the Wall Street Coach podcast. <laughs> so we are so happy to have you. Thank you, Celeste, for being here. Again, thanks for having me. I guess now I've really made it, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. We, we, are, we are not that big yet, <laughs> Celeste, but our hearts are huge. So we, we get the word out there. But I, I, I really was struck when I read your book, Do Nothing, for me personally. It, uh, it forced me to be with something I already knew was true, which is that I have a tendency to overwork because I love what I do. Love, love, love what I do. This is my bliss. But your book made me really see that there is this conditioning, cultural conditioning, that could be, how could it not be influencing me? So that this, that this overworking is what's appropriate or uh, okay. Like there's, there's, there's something like, uh, I don't even know what the word is. There was a couple of quotes that I felt were like really powerful about this concept. And it was like, it, it, it's not like I do it for the money. What I do, I do it because I want to get the tools that I've learned into as many hands as possible. So let's just start there with my own personal question. What do you, what do you believe this book or you address when it comes to somebody like me who loves what they do and yet can see that not having any downtime or more downtime is what we bump into, I bump into? 
I mean, it's a good place to start because the book um, came from a very personal place for me. It wasn't supposed to be a book. I was researching a completely different book at the time. Um, and because I had these problems, because I was burning out and I wasn't burning out like, oh, I had burnout that one year. Remember that? No, I was like burning out and then getting back into it and then burning out and then getting back into it. It became this cycle of burnout. Um, and when I started researching what was happening to me, why I kept doing this to myself, um, I realized it wasn't me, it was us, <laughs> that this was bigger than who I was. And I realized that because every time I peeled back the layer, I honestly assumed that this drive that I had to work all the time, this, this, this delusion that I had that no, no, I'm, I'm working this much because I, I love what I do, which is a delusion. <laughs> um, I thought it was going to be the fault of technology. Mm -hmm. And I, when, then when I realized it wasn't, that it had nothing to do with my smartphone, that it predated smartphones, that it predated the computer, that's when I was like, okay, this is a societal problem. Um, and that's when it sort of became a book. And when you say cultural conditioning, that's a really nice way to put it. I say it's kind of brainwashing. We've all been brainwashed. And yeah. um, that's why we can't kind of trust ourselves in the same way that someone with an eating disorder can't, they have body dysmorphia, right? They look right. in the mirror and what they see in the mirror is not reality. That's the, we have work dysmorphia. <laughs> what we're seeing wow when we look at our own lives is not the truth. Wow. When did, what was the pivotal part of your research that you bumped into that? Um, it happened relatively early on because when I, like I said, I kept going back further and further and further to try and find patient zero, right? Like when did this start? And that led me back to some extremely old and, uh, boring <laughs> books about labor practices in ancient times, right? And when I, I, I started to realize that the way we live and work is super recent, right? Like human beings lived a certain way and worked a certain way for most of our 300,000 years on this planet. And only two or 300 years ago, did we change all of it? And that those changes in our in our living habits also coincided with a lot of health problems with a lot of mental health problems um so you again there's no way to sort of draw the line scientifically yeah. directly from one to the other with a cause and effect but it's just impossible not to draw those lines in a in a broader way and see that when we allowed work to overtake more than half of our lives it had a cascade of negative effects. You know, one of the things that I've done around describing your book to people and to clients, because I work with a lot of finance people, I work with a lot of traders, uh, I work with people who work a lot, to succinctly say it. And I can tell that my ability to enroll them in reading this book can be challenging sometimes. <laughs> and what I have begun to do, this is my quick, short, you know, enticement, my cheese on the mousetrap, if you will, is do you know that serfs in England worked for a king who were basically indentured servants less hours a week than we do? And when I tell them that one, that gets their attention, Celeste. <laughs> 
Yeah, we have these assumptions about the way people lived in, in previous eras, and they're not true. They're just not true. I mean, one of the things I very clearly try to lay out is that I'm, I'm leaving slaves out of this. We, there, there have been mm. slaves in lots of eras. You can't yeah. include them. Yep. But yep. for everybody else, look, I wouldn't want to live in the Middle Ages again, but A, their, 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 their uh, longevity was not as short as we think that it was, and B, they worked less than half a year. And that was the lowest on the income scale. So uh, think about it this way. Like all of these things that we have developed that are, were meant to save us time. Mm. You know, we're talking about, right now we're mentioning areas in our history when they had to churn their own butter, when they had <laughs> to do all of that stuff themselves, right? We have, one of the big aha moments for me was I came home from work and I was just exhausted. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon. I have an early day. And I was like, I'm going to have to order food again. I, I just, there's no way I can make dinner. And I love to cook, right? Wow. This is not about lack of will. And then I like leaned on my couch and I looked in my kitchen and I saw my microwave and I started thinking, well, that's interesting because my grandmother <laughs> didn't have a microwave. Right. And, and then I started going around my house with a pad of paper, adding up all of the time that I saved over my grandmother and great grandmother, wow. like week by week, all my time saving devices, my robot vacuum, my <laughs> Google assistant, all that stuff. How much time do I save? And it came out to somewhere between um, like 30 and 42 hours a week. Wow. Like it's ridiculous. Wow. And, I thought, how, why do I not have enough time? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Like literally yeah. my work takes less time than the Celeste of 1970. Yes. Right? Yes. So why do yep. I not have enough time? So and that's what, sort of what's the answer? Open. What's um, the there's answer? A, there's a few, I mean, obviously it, there's no, it's not simple, but there's a few <laughs> things going on here. Number one, I, my time perception is for crap. This is the, the, the sort of work dysmorphia as I was talking about, which is that we actually are not working as much as we think. Mm -hmm. We, um, when I had to sit down and sort of track all my time, just like a food diary and see where my time was going. And a huge amount of my time was being poured straight down the internet toilet. Wow. Um, just clicking on other links surfing around, going back to my inbox to check it, answering an email that honestly, if it needed to be answered ever, it didn't need to be answered today. <laughs> um, all of that kind of stuff, we was just flushing my time down the toilet. But then also I was doing all of these things that made me feel anxious. So in, my, in the off time that I had, if I got a few minutes from work, um, I would get up from my, my chair and I'd maybe walk to the break room or downstairs to the lobby where they had comfy couches and I'd stare at my phone, right? I would do other stuff. I'd shop. I'd say, hey, what do I want to, where do I want to go for vacation this year? Let me look at good <laughs> places to visit. And it turns out that neurologically, cognitively speaking, that's not a break. As far as your mind yeah. is concerned, you're staring at your phone. You're still working. Yeah. So I was basically working these weeks and never taking a break. Yeah. Yeah. So the people that are watching us 
a lot of them are going to be traders who consider staying in tune to the market, staying in tune to industries, to sectors are important. How would you enroll them in understanding that always being plugged in isn't going to necessarily translate to them being necessarily good at their job? Yeah, I don't even have to qualify it with necessarily because the fact of the matter is, is that the brain doesn't function like that. Like you can leave a computer on all the time. If you want to set up your computer to send notifications and if, if some stock falls below a certain level, please feel free. The computer's fine doing that. Mm -hmm. But um, you're talking about the law of diminishing returns here. After you've worked a certain amount of hours a day, and I'm talking about work that requires focus, and that includes the work involved in trading, that's all you have. And we know that once you push your brain and force it to continue focusing and working past that point, you're going to start making a bunch of errors. You're going to start making assumptions that aren't correct. You're going to start taking mental and cognitive shortcuts. You become less compassionate. You become less insightful. You become less innovative. You just you can't push the brain. You know, one of the things I, one of the stories I sort of harken back to in the book is the story of um, uh, John Henry, right? That story you learn when you're young. And John Henry was the steel driving man. He's working on the railroads. And then someone brings in like a, a, a machine that's supposed to drive all the pegs into the railroad tracks, right? And John Henry, this is part of his pride. And he's not going to let that machine beat him. And he works and works and works. And he, he wins and dies, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So this is exactly, <laughs> that is the most perfect, perfect yeah. industrial revolution fable ever. Because yeah. yeah, you can force your brain to do it, yeah. but at what cost? So give us the hard truth about the hours. Obviously, I imagine they're going to be probably within a range, but what would you say is the appropriate amount of hours for work, for our brain, health, soul, today? Um, so your brain can only do focused work for maybe three or four hours a day. Wow. That's just the truth. Now, there's all kinds of stuff that you do that doesn't require a lot of cognitive, it doesn't, the, the cognitive load is not high, yeah. right? Um, but if you're like actually requiring your prefrontal cortex, your executive decision-making to come into play, you got three or four hours and that's it. Wow. So, and again, that sounds crazy, but mm -hmm. if you look back at the work habits of some of the greatest minds in history, the yeah. most productive and accomplished people in history, that's all they did. Some of them worked two hours a day and then took long walks <laughs> out through their massive fields because they were- Say some of their them. names, Celeste. Say <laughs> we're some talking about people like Charles Diskin, Dickens, Blaise Pascal, Charles Darwin, like incredible people who changed the course of history. These were not yeah. lazy people. No. Yeah. <laughs> These were not like, you know, people who didn't like create something for the world to see and read. <laughs> it's, yeah. It, it, right? It's, yeah, absolutely. We would all be so lucky if if we were as 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 impactful as Charles Darwin. I mean, <laughs> it's like these are the people that we really want to emulate in more ways than one and yet we're thinking and and i imagine also people feel i mean what is the most common catchphrase i don't have enough time that's what yep. everybody says yeah. all the time so why do we feel like that celeste well one of them is this time perception 
um, we do not have a very accurate time perception. So time perception just refers to your, the, your, the accuracy with which you know how you spend your time. Mm. Right. And this is important to understand this quality because a, most of us don't have it. There are, our time perception is, is bad, but also very significantly low time perception is associated with all kinds of things we don't particularly want. People mm. who have low time perception are less compassionate. They're less mm. generous. They're less cooperative. Um, basically when you have low time perception, what's, let me just venture into neurology here for just a moment. When you start to feel you're pressed for time, your brain thinks it's an emergency, mm. right? And, and we just haven't evolved fast enough for your brain to truly distinguish between running from a tiger and uh, I need to get a memo done by noon. <laughs> <laughs> so to your brain, it's all the same thing. Yes. And, and basically your brain hands the reins over to the amygdala. That's the tiny little nugget, the walnut at the top of your spine. It's your fight, flight, or freeze. It's, it's your monkey brain, right? Your lizard brain. Um, that lizard brain is really only good for those three things. Fight, mm -hmm. flight, freeze. It's like handing the, the, the wheel of a car over to an eight-year-old. It's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but basically because we're all in this emergency mode all the time yeah. we wake up feeling pressed for time we yeah. go to lunch feeling pressed for time yeah. which means your amygdala is in charge all the time and that's gonna means your cortisol levels are through the roof why because your body is in emergency mode all day totally. long you totally. never will feel rested you never will feel relaxed Right, like you need to get yourself to the point if you really want to allow for the possibility of deep thought. The possibility cycle, of what? Deep thought. Yeah. Innovation, creativity. If that's really what you want, then you have to be able to find a way to allow your body to relax, to get out of emergency mode. Mm. Beautiful. I, I want to read a couple of quotes from the book. Uh, Lucas, you know, had sent me some of his highlights and, and I noticed how we both had so many of the same highlights. So I feel like I can't say if these are Lucas's or mine, but <laughs> here are a couple of them. Comparisons make us feel less than, especially comparisons made at a distance. I learned a phrase, compare equals despair from one of my coaches. But the piece that's so powerful in this sentence of yours is the comparisons made at a distance, which is what I see right now everybody's doing because of Instagram, because of social media. It, it keeps us certainly at the distance, not seeing the full picture. That's just a powerful quote. I want to read a couple more to the viewers uh, who, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Celeste, that we talked a little bit about your book in one of my podcasts and we titled it, uh, what is it called? Do do less and get more. I can't even remember the title, Lucas. Yeah, something but like it's, that. <laughs> it's our least watched episode, Celeste. And I, on one hand, am not surprised because it scares the shit out of people, excuse my French. And yet, on the other hand, it breaks my heart because that is, and even this one, I'm already like been racking my brains before interviewing you. How can we title this that will get, like trick people to watch it, which is crazy. Why do I have to think like this? 
So anyway, here's a couple more quotes. Leisure becomes stressful when you subconsciously believe you're wasting money by not being productive. However, if one of your end goals is to be happy, then pursuing a bigger income is not necessarily going to get you where you want. Allow yourself to consider other options. Talk to us about that quote. So, you know, one of the big revelations for me was... um, that before the industrial revolution time did not equal money it just didn't we um people would need we were task-based lots of us know that already but things were not calculated the price of things wasn't calculated according necessarily to how much time it took it was according to expertise right if you wanted Hmm. uh, if you wanted a a rembrandt to do your portrait well, you're paying for Rembrandt, <laughs> right? You're not yes. paying for how long it took Rembrandt to, to paint it. Yes, craftsmen, artisans. Exactly. But then when you get to a factory line, which is where the Industrial Revolution began, it doesn't matter. Rembrandt can be on the factory line and he could be no less valuable than the person next to him. It's just how many hours he's there and how many wagon wheels or whatever it is he produces. Yeah. And so our entire value system flipped and time literally began to equal money. And, and so we, what, that, what has happened over, t- over, over time, pardon my pun, is that um, we start, have started calculating in our brains how much money is being wasted if we take a day off. Yeah. How much money is being wasted if we uh, 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 cut short our hours by the day, right? Um, and so, that has been internalized to such an extent. You know, one of the studies I cite in the in the book is this one where they had people listening to this truly beautiful, transcendent piece of music, which is the flower duet from an opera called Lachme. It's gorgeous. Many people use it in their weddings. Mm. I mean, it's like maybe two and a half minutes long. <laughs> it's <a> very short <laughs> piece. Some of the, half of the participants before, among the surveys you take, you know, when you go in for a study, one of the questions was, what is your time worth per hour? That was one. The rest of them, they didn't have that question. For those who are, who are prompted to think about their hourly rate, they felt like within 30 seconds to 60 seconds, they were like, this song has gone on for too long. When is this going to be done? Why do I have to sit here and listen to this? And everybody else was like, wow, that was beautiful. Wow. Like literally when the people were thinking about their time in terms of how much it was worth, they couldn't even enjoy beauty. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Really. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention, I wanted to say, and, and since you're talking about people not wanting to listen to these episodes, let me just give <laughs> you a few examples of people throughout history. For example, Einstein slept at least 10 hours a night and took naps all day long. Um, Ernest Hemingway worked maybe five or six hours a day. Stephen King writes for four hours a day, period. Winston Churchill, and I may get this quote wrong, so uh, people can tell me that I got it wrong, but he said, um, don't think you'll do less work if you sleep during the day. That's a foolish idea held by people who have no imaginations. You'll be able to accomplish more. He took naps all the time, right? I mean, some of the most prolific people Ever. Uh, Alice Monroe, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature, three hours a day. Wow. Again, this this compulsion that we have is yeah. not based on reality. 
Yeah. And especially now, there, there's one quote where you said uh, that now productivity has become our religion. That is a powerful, powerful quote. Uh, I, I want to read the whole thing here. Let's see if I have it. I, I, I just have so many quotes of yours that it's like hard <laughs> to find. All right. The, 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 like every paragraph, Celeste, I would just almost have to put the book down and be like, oh my God. Like I said, oh my God, more often in your book than I think any book I've read in a long time. I read a lot. I read a lot. But every paragraph felt like, I mean, I'll be honest, it's sometimes it felt like somebody took a bat to my belly because I was like, oh, oh, like I could, I think I kept witnessing my having been brainwashed. It, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. I have to be honest. It's kind of, you're like, I was duped. Yeah. I know we've all been duped. We've all been duped into this idea that our value is based on our work. You know, and it, it's, I would, I, you know, I've had this conversation with so many people where they're like, I, I love to work though. And I'm like, yeah, but it's impossible for me to know how much of that is you loving the work intrinsically yeah. and yeah. how much of that is the fact that you love feeling valuable and you hate the feeling of not being valued and respected. And in our society, the only thing that's valued and respected is hard work. God, Celeste, yeah. can I ask you to just say that again? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the difficulty for me yeah. because, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's like the way that people interpret unemployment uh, studies because people will say, well, somebody who's unemployed has all these negative effects, right? They get, they're more likely to get depressed. They're more likely to abuse substances like alcohol. And I'll say, yeah, that's true except of course they do because society is telling them that if you don't have a job you're not worth anything yep, yep. That's it. <clears throat> so That's we it. don't know we can't separate at this point this is one of the most in the biggest indictments of our society is that at this point it is impossible to separate somebody's inherent value from their work yeah yep impossible yeah and that to me is crazy it's That's criminal crazy it's criminal because we've collapsed worthiness with work ethic and it just worthiness i'm of the opinion worthiness can't be earned worthiness is a birthright and you can't or it's your earn character it. right it's your it's what you choose to do this is how you end up with us lionizing these truly despicable people who maybe they've worked hard maybe they've earned a lot of money but that doesn't mean they have any character or integrity. Nope. You so betcha. you have to ask yourself if, if your values are hard work and income, and that means you're including all of these people who are truly awful human beings. Maybe that value that you have is not worth the effort and time you're putting into it. Yep. Yep. Just be willing to question whether work ethic is actually something that you were believing or that you just culturally got brainwashed into as well. Like and, the, and the difference. And it's important that we emphasize brainwash here because when you go back to the beginnings of this, this uh, delusion, it was a literal effort 
to mm. manipulate people's minds. Tell us more like, about that. Literally, you can actually see that the exact, I mean, we're talking about people who were trained in spy craft and propaganda during the world wars and then said, hey, we can bring our services to corporations and try to manipulate their workforce to work harder. And so they literally created these campaigns that try and put up posters everywhere and created a films to try and convince people that if you did not, the, the, you know, if you weren't working hard, your neighbor was, they're trying to get ahead of you. Um, if you take a day off, that means you're lazy and awful and not patriotic. You see people like Andrew Carnegie um, saying, if you work really hard, you can be as rich as me. At the same time that he is opposing any raises in wages, that he is opposing any attempt to reduce the 14-hour workday. I mean, honestly, who works harder than a steel employee? Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and his thought of like, minimum was 14 hours a day. Can you imagine? Wow. Just, just this terrific. Is, it's like they do, they're saying what they're saying that gets the masses to get manipulated. But the reality is that they know of what they're really doing to their people is just getting as much out of them as possible. Like yes. they are machines, not yes. human beings. Absolutely. Not human beings. The, the quest for achieving peak productivity is now akin to religion, one consisting of high priests, time management gurus, life hack specialists, productivity coaches, headlining management professionals, various teachings, apps, tools, approaches, methods, reminders, blah, 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 and millions of willing aspirants early adopters, workshop participants, a search for how to be more productive yields at present count, 40,900,000 results. People, sure we have a happen. problem. <laughs> yeah, we have a problem. And it's killing us, right? It you is. know, um, the, the life expectancy, and this is pre-COVID, life expectancy in the United States has fallen for like several years in a row. Wow. And uh, when the most recent report, they asked the, the, the doctor who was the lead author on the study, what was killing people early? And he said, despair. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, how can you not be in despair when you have hooked your train car to the belief that your worthiness is based on your working? And no matter how much you work, including around the clock, it isn't enough because you're going to see somebody else at a distance, like your quote says, pro presenting as though the way they're operating is even more hard work than you. So yeah. you're going to be always kind of pre-despaired pre before you even get out of the gate. And imagine... The, the impact that it has when you don't get a promotion or someone else gets a promotion or you, or you don't aren't praised at work or a project that you have uh, fails. I mean, there is an outsized impact on your mental well-being. Yeah. Um, that can send people into spirals of depression and sadness, Absolutely. which makes absolutely no sense. 
yeah, the stakes sure. should not be at, that high uh, yeah. um, for people. And so you have to ask yourself why. And the reason is, is because people have allowed their work to become identity. And again, I say people have allowed, I don't mean, I'm not trying to blame the victim here. We are victims of a society that is basically abusing all of us uh, in order to feed an industrial fire. Um, but our, our work becomes our identity. Yeah. And the countries where it is the most prevalent, where all the indicators show that we are, are at a level of toxicity, those are countries like the United States, the uh, Canada, the UK, Australia, New Zealand. Those are also the countries where it's considered to be acceptable to, for your first question on meeting someone to be, what do you do? Yeah. It just realized to me, I, I was thinking as you're speaking, it's uh, the way we introduced you in the podcast is all the things you've done for a living. Yeah. And that's how we introduce everybody. That's the yep. cu cultural norm of it. Um, so how would you introduce yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> um, it, it, that's, it's funny because the way that I generally introduce myself is, hi, I'm a journalist and, uh, and a storyteller, usually. That's Good. generally how I do it. Or I'll say, hi, I'm uh, Grant's mom. <laughs> hi, I've introduced myself a couple of times like, hi, I'm Celeste Headley. I'm a work in progress. Uh, <laughs> I like uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm just trying to keep expectations low. Uh, <laughs> we all are, right? It's just a right. practice. Exactly. <laughs> but maybe, Celeste, maybe we're keeping people's expectations low because of this goddamn stupid brainwashing. Like, if we aren't coming with all that and a bag of chips and a fucking Nobel Peace Prize on top of it, who am I? Like, you're Grant's mom, for God's sake. <laughs> you know? like, like, it's crazy that we're like, we got to keep expectations low. Because if you haven't run 15 Ironmans, you're nobody. Like, it's garbage. Yeah, it is. And I remember while I was writing this, uh, while I was writing the book, and at one point I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to meet my deadline. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and there's all this stuff falling through the cracks and I'm like, and I have to do a keynote speech tonight and I don't want to. And I was saying all this stuff and, and to my friend and she's like, Celeste, <laughs> like if, if you're a failure, what the, can I share? Does <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that say about me? Like, what, where does that leave me? Like, <laughs> seriously. <laughs> You you need to stop. You just need to stop. <laughs> good you know, friend. Sometimes good friend. you're not gonna want to do stuff. Yeah, sometimes you're exactly. gonna feel crappy about things. Yes. Sometimes you're gonna be in a bad mood. Yes. And yes. it doesn't make you a bad person. And For you know, sure. this is also something you learn. I'm a I'm a Buddhist. And so one of the teachings of Buddhism is to to constantly remind you that you are not your feelings, yeah. right? That you're not your emotions or your thoughts. Yeah. That um I can feel angry and that doesn't mean I'm angry. Yes. That's not my character. That's something I felt for that moment. Yeah. Or if my my neighbor comes out and I go, God, that's an ugly pair of pants. Um, that doesn't make me mean. That's yeah. just the thought I had. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or or good taste you have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, this is sort of like disconnecting these things, these, mm. these connections that we've made that are unnatural and yeah. frankly illogical. Yeah. We sort of have to go through them one by one, like a bomb diffuser and disconnect them. Pull them out, pull them yeah. out. Lucas, I can't help but think that the question you spoke about asking, it's a good time for it now. 
Um, oh, which one? Oh, okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I forgot about this. It seems like, uh, so you said somewhere, I think in maybe the Ted talk, uh, that you believe like everyone is an expert of something. Um, and I was wondering, you seem like you do so many things. You're a, a singer, a journalist. That's something we didn't mention. I don't think, but yeah, yeah you that's get, right. We didn't. <laughs> you're, uh, a, a, a master's, musician. a master's, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Master's. Uh, you tell us. You have master's. <laughs> I have a master's in vocal performance. I'm a professional opera singer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I my so, that way. so what don't you do? <laughs> How do you do nothing? <laughs> oh yeah, I. There's lots of stuff I'm terrible at, um, and I make mistakes constantly. So I, I am. I mean, I just spent this morning, I spent like two and a half hours watching videos on how to read survey results. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't get it. Um, my son will tell you that I'm not very funny um, and that I have, you know, I, I have a problem with ordering amounts. Like every time I order groceries or whatever, I end up with either like a massive amount of things. I don't know what's going wrong in my brain, but like, I never seem to realize like I'll show up and I'll have like 14 bags of popcorn. And I'm like, how, how did I like, th I mean, this isn't this isolated thing. This has happened for years that I cannot seem to order the correct amount of anything. <laughs> I mean, there are so many things that I do that are just terrible. Um, mm. that, uh, I, I you know, I, I accept them, but the, you know, part of the thing that makes it easier for me is that the things that I do well, I get recognition and a praise yeah. for. Yeah. So it's way easier for me to accept that I'm also shitty at all this other stuff, right? Uh, I can't draw to save my life. Um, all these things that I can't do. I hate cleaning. <laughs> well, I'm, I, the heck with those things. I'm curious, how do you do with the doing nothing? Um, I, that's a work in progress. I mean, it's not always easy for me. I'm a lot better at it now. Yeah. You know, it's funny. One of the gotcha questions that people ask me in interviews is, look, you're telling everybody to do nothing, but you've done this and you've done this and you've done yeah. that. And I'm like, yeah, but the, the secret is that using the new habits that I've learned, I get that stuff done in half the day. Yeah. And yeah. then the yeah. rest of the day I watch Netflix and I take my dog for walks, like for, 90 minutes to two hours a day and like i have time for all that to goof yeah. off yeah because i've learned how to use my time wisely like that's yeah. not a very good gotcha question just fyi um but uh <laughs> for future but, future interviewers <laughs> future interviewers that's not a good gotcha question but it's hard i mean it's hard yeah. for all of us and the, the fact of the matter is is that the pressure is constant. It's not like I suddenly saw the man behind the curtain and then everything, you know, I, I, you know, I realized the secret of Oz. It's like, there's, there's people behind curtains everywhere. I look, it's constant yeah. pressure yeah. to, to prove that you're worth something yeah. that you deserve what you have because I, that's how hard I work. I, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I f have felt somewhat frustrated with myself since reading this book because I feel now I have seen the wizard behind the curtain and yet I still haven't figured it out yet how to uh, give myself more of that time. But I can tell you that I've done two things thanks to your book. I bought a bike, which nice. is, was my favorite thing to do as a child. A real road was, bike or a Peloton? 
it, no, no, not a Peloton, a real road bike. Like it's, nice. it's like basic mountain bike because we, we have gravel roads in some places here. But like I kept trying to think about your book and what it spoke to about like what, the, what joy is for you, what fun is for you. Like, like, get, like not do something from the productive mindset, but like what will make me happy? And, 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 and that was like the one thing I'm like, I knew I needed to exercise more, but I was like, I wasn't going to the gym, you know, because it wasn't making me happy. And I was like, bike riding. When I was a little girl, bike riding was my whole world. It made me so happy. I had time to think and process my crazy household. Like all of that, it gave me that. So I was like, I think I have to get a bike. So thank you, Celeste, for my new bike. <laughs> That's awesome. What's the second thing? Second thing is that I realized I really need to work with somebody if I'm doing a workout, so I, I'm start, I just signed up for six Pilates classes. Nice. Where I get one-on-one customer service, you know, somebody shows me how to position myself. And that even, and, and even that, it's like, it's not aerobic, right? It's not going to probably cross all the boxes of my weight loss or fitness stuff. But I was like, that feels like I, dan I did jazz dance for years, you know, long ago, not professionally, just for fun. And that was fun. So again, this is like, it's like dancers do Pilates. And I'm like, I'm just going to be doing things that are fun now. Yeah. And I, I really want you to know, I attribute that to what I learned in your book. So thank you for that. I'm so glad. I mean, I ended up buying, I've become a crazy plant lady since writing, starting this book. I'm like, you know what I like? I like plants. I like them a lot. <laughs> so my it's house amazing. is filled with plants and I, you know, it's not like I'm a perfect plant person. Of course. I kill plants. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Most of them live <laughs> over 90%, but every once in a while I'm like, oops, better track record than I have. Good job. <laughs> so my house, you know, this is one of those things that again, they're not pretty. I am not going to put them on Instagram. It's not going to be added Correct. to my brand, Correct. but I just like, <laughs> I like talking to my plants. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. All right. A couple other quotes here. You speak to stop viewing your off hours as potential money-making time. You can't put a monetary value on your free time because you're paying for it in mental and physical health. Don't let corporate values, which we all know is the Madison Avenue machine as well, determine how you spend your days and what your priorities are. You are a big-brained social animal who, currently, uh, who is currently constrained by unrealistic demands and expectations. Your vision has been narrowly focused for too long on your work and your marketability, but your intrinsic value as a human is more related to your position in your community than to your earning power as a laborer. Holy God, that quote is just profound. It's profound, Celeste. You know, it's interesting, you were mentioning earlier about comparisons, and, and this is one of those things that connects to that particular quote, because we used to compare, when we did make comparisons, I think, Lucas, you were mentioning comparisons at a difference. We were comparing ourselves with the people around us, mm. um, our neighbors. You know, that was where that phrase came, can you get up with the Joneses, right? They, the Joneses lived down your block. <laughs> And yes. Mr. Jones was always coming over and bragging about his white wall tires or whatever yep. it was. Yep. Um, now we're comparing ourselves with uh, 
the Trumps <laughs> and the Kardashians yes. and the Hadids or whoever. Yes. Yes. Um, and so we will never feel we're enough. Yeah, exactly. ever. You will exactly. never achieve that. And it's, this is the same thing with your intrinsic worth. It, that in a, in a lot of ways, it's funny that they classified this my this particular book, especially as self help, because I see it as the opposite. Mm. It is the anti self help book. It's saying yes. you're yes. okay. Yes. The the things that are being told to you about constant improvement, about the yes. fact that you are uh, constantly in need of tinkering and tweaking and yes. tips and hacks, and that's not true. You're fine. Totally. Totally. In fact, in my coach training, uh, the reason I chose the curriculum or school, the coaches training Institute was because they taught, they taught right out of the gate. Your clients are perfect. They are not broken. They do not need fixing and they actually know how and what they need to do. What you are there to do is to help them see all this to help them see all this. And, you know, I've coached now for 14 years and along the way, especially at the beginning, you know, I mean, honestly, it's been like 12 years of like hell and maybe just the last year or two, it started to like be, okay, I maybe won't have to get another job on the side. (laughs) It's been hard. It's been hard. Um, But those years, especially in those first five, 10 years, I saw a lot of productivity coaches or like coaches that were like, Hey, we're going to help you hack this or hack that. And I, and I kind of think I was being sold that as well. Like add this to your coaching package, add this to your coaching program. And I remember feeling like that's going to just, it, first of all, it didn't resonate with me, but second of all, it just felt like it was making people wrong fundamentally. <coughs> yeah. And you don't want to make people, uh, not trust themselves, which is kind of where we are right now. It's so weird to me the way that we all these articles come out saying, here's the 14 things that Steve Jobs did every morning. And if, obviously, if you do these 14 things, you will <laughs> be Steve Jobs, right? God, no. Which is ridiculous, right? Like, again, it's kind of like these comparisons at a distance. Yeah. I can see my neighbors, what they, their habits work awesome for them. Do I want to do what my neighbors do every single morning? No, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. That's great for you. It apparently seems to be working. But again, it's if you start sort of evaluating and making decisions about your life based on what someone else is doing, who you don't know. Correct. You don't know them. The behind the scenes, you only yeah. see what's in the front of you. But do they have anybody that loves them in their household? Does their wife like them? Do their kids talk to them? Like, you don't see all that. Yeah. You have yeah. no idea if that's actually would work for you. You have no idea if that's actually making them happier. Correct. And that's the question is, what is your goal? Is it to make more money? Is that your life's goal? Or is that money, making more money is supposed to get you something else? And if so, what is that other thing? Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's what, one thing I wanted to ask you about is defining, we, we've talked a couple times about goals, but in the book, you define uh, means goals versus ends goals. And if you could just kind of surmise that for the listeners. Yeah, because the problem is, is that we're almost entirely ruled by means goals. Yeah. So uh, it's exactly as it sounds, uh, a mean, there are means goals 
which are supposed to be the means to an end. Mm -hmm. So let's say um, that your goal is to uh, help those less fortunate than you. Like if that's your, your big life dream. Um, so you start out on this goal. This is, you know, you're in, you're in college maybe, and this is your life dream and you're idealistic and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to get a job to take care of my regular, <laughs> I can't be mother Teresa. I, I gotta, uh, I gotta get a regular paying job and you start doing that. And then all these little means goals start getting in the way you start saying, well, God, I, I want that one promotion because they make $15 more per hour than I do. And that promotion suddenly starts to feel like an end goal. Mm -hmm. And you, you, things become disconnected from this end goal. And so you start doing things like, well, I need to lose 50 pounds. Why? For what purpose? Yeah. I need to run a marathon. For what reason? Yeah. Right. How is this connected to the broader goals that you have in life? The, the, the reason this is so important is that when you are pursuing an end, a means goal, um, and it doesn't work, to get you where you want to go, you can just change it. If getting that, yeah. that promotion isn't going to get you where you need to go, don't worry about the promotion. If that job isn't working, get a different one. Yeah. And means goals should be flexible. They should change. Yeah. Ends goals are the ones that don't change. And we have screwed them up. We have, we have spent so much time and energy uh, focusing on means goals, which we may not be able to ever reach. You may not ever be able to shed that 50 pounds. Yeah. That may never happen. It doesn't yeah. mean your life is a failure. Yeah. Or you're a failure, even yeah. worse, which can, you know, I, I kind of teared up earlier when I read that quote of yours, because that concept of these uh, expectations that I see a lot of my clients and colleagues and friends and myself, it's like we have set the bar at such a level that we're never ever feeling satisfied with ourselves. It's never enough. No matter how much, how many boxes we check, we're fundamentally still feeling it's not enough. And that to me is just heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. And you can see it reflected in all kinds of ways. How, um, how much does your appearance have to look like a models in a magazine before you're happy with how you look? How much money has to be in the bank yeah. before you feel like you're, it's enough, like you don't have to focus on money anymore? How much does your, ki do your kids need to do in school before you feel like my kid's okay, my kid is enough, right? How if you're constantly, constantly becoming, you can never be. Yeah. Yep. And that, and that, you know, there's a beautiful quote uh, that says, uh, I may not even say it right, but it's, you know, uh, all the doing is not, if, if you're always in the doing, then you're never in the being and that we're human beings, not human doings. Yeah. And that's what I felt your book helped me, you know, be able to see not just, I, I think I always understood that quote and I think I got it, but I, I think your book helped me realize that part of the reason it's hard to live that or practice it is because of these lies that are underneath 
the water that have become so part of the you know woodwork or it's like a fish in water we, we don't even know the water's there and and you know here's the thing is that when you start to realize this um you see how much we have uh shaped the narrative to fit this belief. And, mm. and uh, you know, re just recently, uh, a new study came out showing that, in fact, going back to ancient, ancient Homo sapiens, we actually worked less as hunter-gatherers than we did as farmers, right? Wow. We thought that farming would be an improvement, right? We'd have this reliable source of food, et cetera, wow. et cetera, et cetera. But in point of fact, when we were hunter gatherers, just like kind of wandering around, seeing what came around, yeah, we worked just a couple hours a day, <laughs> wow, and and supplied our needs. Then we wow. became farmers. It became sunrise to sunset, yeah. And yet, that's not the narrative we've been taught. Wow, right? that's fascinating, Celeste. And the other thing I'm struck by is the concept of if if that's in the book, I I missed that part, or it's I just because the report just came out. Yeah. Okay, okay, because. That also almost is phenomenally speaking to this concept of hunters and gatherers were not like, you know, putting mason jars of peaches for a rainy day. You know, they were just eating in the moment. That means they were coming from a place of there is more than enough, not from scarcity, which I think has also informs this, right? Why is the amount of money you have not enough? Well, there's this fear that if I don't have more and something goes wrong, so that's just fascinating to me that the hunters and gatherers uh, were only working a couple of hours a day. Yeah. And some days they didn't at all. And right. they would, you, know, you can dry food, right? You can yeah. put, you know, leave it aside in case you spend a day not finding anything. Correct. And, and, and I'm not trying to simplify some very complicated history yep. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I uh, but I will say. also say that our society has set it up to enforce that scarcity. Yes. We have created yes. a society in which it is dangerous to let yourself live on the line. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the vast majority of Americans can't afford a $300 emergency um, shows you that we have created a society in which they, the, in order for our economic system to work, the majority of people need to be afraid. Yeah, That's the only way our economic system works is if people are literally afraid for their lives. And we have to ask ourselves ethically and morally if that's the way we should be living, if that's yeah. what we should be subjecting other people to. And teaching our children. Yeah, and I mean, think about all that you lose when you go part-time. Mm. Think about that. Yeah, right? right. You don't lose half Healthcare. your pay. Yep. You, no, lose you lose everything. Yeah, You're it's right. Like a, everything. It's like a 90% cut, actually. Yeah why you know what it makes me think of lucas and celeste i have to tell you this there's a pdt rule for traders for day traders that if you can explain yeah. it even better than i can lucas yeah so so if you're under if you have less than twenty five thousand dollars in your account you are unable to make uh more than three trades in uh over the course of five days basically um and so it's like this very big pushing down of the people who have the least amount. Um, and they said it was for, I mean, they, they can say whatever, but they said it was for to protect like newer traders so they don't like lose money, which is fair. But also the people with the huge accounts are often the ones who lose the most. So it's, it, exactly. it's, it's a very similar thing. Yeah. It's, the, yeah. it's the concept again of like, 
you know, is though it's for your own good. It's for your own good. I mean, yeah. how many times have we, been, have we been spoon fed that line? And, and the concept though of part-time, here you are part-time, maybe your wines go part-time because you want to start your own business or start to have some more freedom for yourself. And yet, if you do that, you potentially put yourself, your family at risk. And one of the stories that I mentioned in there is, you know, as a journalist, I get uh, press releases all the time. And one of the press releases I got was from uh, one of the ride-sharing apps with their f- cute story of the woman who uh, yes. picked up a fare while she was on the this. way to give birth. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I was horrified, horrified. That's this was the their hell? cute story. Like she was going into labor or in labor and on the way to the hospital, she picked up a ride affair. And I was like, seriously, did nobody, did no red flags rise for anyone when you put out this? No, that's what's scary. No, they didn't. And in fact, they probably will get more downloads because of that, because this brainwashing has been so with doctrinated. You know, okay. you're, you're almost, I imagine like, uh, you know how they say, if you buy a red Volkswagen, suddenly you see red Volkswagens everywhere. You are probably every day bumping into this brainwashing to the point where I <laughs> bet you get fatigued from it. You're probably like, oh, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And, and all my friends, it, it comes up all the time because they'll be like, oh my God, I, I need to, you know, it's, I, I have to get some dinner, but I still have all this work to do. And then they'll say, oh, I shouldn't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> that's great (laughs) i'll be like let me ask you something by you getting those last few emails yeah do you really think that's going to shorten your day tomorrow has that ever worked ever great question great question of course it doesn't work of course it doesn't because it's there's not just a list of tasks it's just a treadmill putting in five extra hours on the treadmill and not and staying on it yeah (laughs) it's like if you want to get a break from the treadmill you have to get off exactly (laughs) you have to step off the freaking treadmill i i live in hawaii now and i moved here from new york city i was born in brooklyn quite the culture change quite the culture change i came here initially to write my book because i had done a year and a half of interviews 90 which was just way too much but you know i was so naive uh and because i'm you know this energy of go 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 i came to hawaii and it it was like uh it ripped me open it forced me to see uh how and, and the other thing that's really funny about Hawaii, which I have to share with you, is there's this thing called talk story, which basically means you are going to not be going anywhere if an elder, an auntie or an uncle, anybody older than you, wants to share about what happened with the goats that morning. <laughs> so I started to realize I'm never going to get to places on time unless I book in 15 minutes for talk story on the way to this place. And it started to slow me down, right? I'm here a year and a half. I go back to New York and a couple of things happened. I'm smiling at people on the subway. I'm walking up the stairs one day, you know, the subway. And the guy behind me flies past me. He goes, 
like that because I was walking too slow. I was walking <laughs> too slow. And then I was like, wait a minute. Do I want to not smile at people? Like first I thought I lost my near hustle. I lost it, right? And then I was like, do I want to walk? I have high heels on. I don't even want to walk up the stairs that fast. Like it made me have to reassess. And then I got the chance to come back here. Um, and I started to realize I felt like a better human being here. I was nicer, kinder to myself and to others. Um, you know, still a, a major shift, but everything inside of my heart and my soul felt like this is what you need now. You need, because being in a city, I think, at least New York City, there's like this green energy of go, 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 do, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. I, I still bring that with me, but this place constantly keeps it in check for me because you can't, you don't pass on the right here. You don't blow your horn here. Like there's so many cultural expectations of being island style, you know, Hawaiian style, island time, whatever they call that, right? So it, it, it's helped me, but not enough because when I read your book, I felt like cold glass of water had been thrown in it. Yeah. There's, I was, was a reporter in, in Arizona for, for a long time, for years. And I did a number of trainings in reporting on native communities. And um, I remember doing one of my first stories when I was trying to interview some, some leaders. And I, th I think it was the Tawn Autumn tribe, which is the very Southern end of, of Arizona. And it spans the Mexico border. Like we drew the border of the United States. Right. We did not care at all that we drew it right through. Exactly. Yeah. Their nation. But in any case, um, I remember setting up this interview with one of the tribal leaders and I showed up obviously on time. I'm a University of Michigan graduate for God's sake. <laughs> I'm on time and I'm sitting there and I, I, I wave to him and he's doing other stuff and he kind of goes like this and he keeps doing what he's doing and it looks completely unimportant to me. <laughs> and he continued and like a half hour goes by. 40 minutes goes by and I finally went over and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm here. Could we start? And he goes, yeah, yeah, we're going to start. And he goes back to what he's doing. And when I, I spoke to the, the press liaison for the tribe, she said, yeah, that any time we give you is just sort of ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> and that at first was so, irritating to me. <laughs> um, but when you accept it, when you go like, yeah, it's going to be somewhere around noon, right? Um, it, it, that seems doable. That doesn't seem yeah. like it's an unreasonable thing. No. I mean, you start to realize like, how were we able to make these sort of set start and finish Correct. Anyway? Correct. Yeah. It also gives I'm, both of you more freedom yes. to just, yeah. to just like around noon is like, I'll show up around noon. You show up around noon when we're both ready. That's when we go. As opposed yeah. to rushing, no gun to the head, no have to, must energy. Exactly. Love that. It's funny. Actually. You know what I just realized with you describing that, Celeste, is, you know, Hawaii, they call it island time. So, like, what, what it means is they'll be there at 830 if there isn't surf. <laughs> yeah. Isn't but the, if the opportunity is surf, for joy? Yeah. Correct. If there's an opportunity for joy. So when I first came here and even now, like I just got that I used to talk with other like 
former mainlanders and be like, yeah, yeah, island time, you know, 8.30 if there's no surf. And that would be derogatory. We would be making fun. We would be saying, isn't that ridiculous? And I just realized now with what that story you just shared with us, that that, like, who the hell do I think I am? And who, what the hell's wrong with me that that doesn't sound perfectly logical? Damn straight, if there's surf, you should go surf. Yeah, you have and to capture the me. moment. It doesn't happen all the time. Right. Think about all of the strictures we put on people anyway. I mean, Hawaii is a perfect example because when the, when the, the colonists, when the white people showed up in Hawaii, they said, you guys are dressed horribly. You're, you're sinful. And we're going to put you into Western clothing. And they died yeah. because it was too hot they died of heat prostration and this is one of those things where it's like again i'm not comparing uh our house our toxic productivity to that except that it is killing people yeah exactly right this these i these illogical um values that are not grounded either in our species own strengths and weaknesses and not grounded in into any kind of natural logic they're literally it's literally killing people yeah yeah so first first let's say somebody who's listening especially the traders who are are hearing this conversation today and i'm going to even go out on a limb and say to those who won't read the book We've gone, we've gone past an hour. I knew we would because I could talk to you forever. And there's so many things that are on my notes that I wanted to talk about that we haven't even talked about. Uh, Peck, I want to quote Dr. Peck, that the setting aside, oh, well, this was actually from your rules about how to have a good conversation. I mean, there's just so much I want to talk to you about. <laughs> but if these people listening to us are afraid to read the book or don't think they have time to read the book, what do you feel you want to leave them with about what you've learned that would be the most valuable for people who are hard workers, who are really uh, giving their all. What's your message to them? Um, The emphasis on working all the time is literally in every sense of the word counterproductive. It's taking a bigger cost. We've talked about the cost it takes on your health, but also numerous studies shows that it's only in the end going to increase your income by maybe 6% compared to people who work a reasonable number of hours, you know, 35, 38 hours a week. Those excessive hours are not actually earning you that much money. And the cost you are paying for them is exorbitant. For those who want to see the stats on that, Celeste, who want to see the numbers, because, you know, the people that watch us, uh, some of them are beginners, some of them are quite sophisticated, smart mothers. And I'm going to tell you right now, they're not going to be happy with this piece of news. And they're going to want the evidence. They're going to want the evidence, Celeste. So will you be able to, like, supply us with the stats? It's, foot, it's footnoted in the book. You know, look, if you work in those long hours, you can afford it. Go pick yourself up a book and check the footnotes. I, it took me a long time to footnote all those things. So <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for doing the footnotes because that's a, <laughs> that's a bear to do the yeah, footnotes. It is. But because of your journalistic background, I'm sure – even yourself, like, were you shocked at this when you saw this, when you start reading these stats? Yeah, of course. We've, it's just so much of it is counterintuitive to what we're told. We are yeah. sold a, a bill of goods, um, and it's not a, 
a very good one. The Marcella yeah. Bill of Goods that it's just for rotten apples. <laughs> it's just <laughs> awful. I mean, we lose at every corner. And yeah. and we here's the the thing is is that everyone thinks they're going to be the exception. Yes. And yeah. there are exceptions. There are. There are mm-hmm. exceptions to mm-hmm. everything. Sure. But we all think we're going to be the exception and the statistics math doesn't work that way. No. It yeah. just it doesn't doesn't it doesn't this book celeste your work is profound i almost feel you're a prophet who (laughs) possibly you know how is the response like i i almost feel like you may not get the kind of response you are worthy of this book is worthy of this truth is worthy of because of this religion akin to productivity how has the reception been i mean this reception has been Good. Um, I think I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I think that because I'm a female author, I don't, my work doesn't get treated as seriously as say a Malcolm Gladwell, yeah. right? Um, Malcolm Gladwell's books are going to be treated like big idea books. Um, my book gets put in with self-help. self-help. Yeah. Um, Damn. Yeah. So I, I think there's a massive amount of sexism going on here. Um, I, I think that in terms of readers, the reception has been incredible. Wow. Like I get letters from people who, I mean, I can't even say enough about the really heartfelt response. And the book is is selling quite well, especially for a pandemic book. It came out yep. in March, just as the yes. world was shutting yes. down. Yes. Um, so I cannot, I can't complain about the sales. Um, but I will say that the sexism is so rife in our uh, society, in our publishing, in the yep. way books are treated, that sh- had this book come from a, a, especially a white male author, yep, it probably would have got write-ups in places like the Wall Street Journal. It would have got write-ups in some of these other areas. And yeah. it didn't because yeah. I'm not just a female, I'm a woman of color. And that changes the, the algebra. Absolutely. Absolutely. Celeste, I can't thank you enough for coming on this podcast, for your message. It's, it's profound. I really hope everybody listening to this and beyond will seriously consider it. I think it's going to shock you. It's going to upset your way of operating, but in all the right ways. So thank you, you for your work. Yeah, it's, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for reading changing. and thanks for uh, passing the and we're going we're gonna to ask you to come back because you have a new book coming out uh, in October. Tell us the title of that book and what it's about, please. It's, it's called Speaking of Race, and it's about how to talk about race regardless of your color and politics. Not educating you on issues of race. There's lots of books that do that beautifully. It's literally walking you through how to get through that conversation. And, and how to get through any conversation is uh, also something that Celeste is an expert in. Again, her TED Talk around how to have a really good conversation is so powerful. Nine minutes. I, I, hate, to, I hate to emphasize how short it is after this conversation, <laughs> but I'm going to. Ten basic rules. Uh, how to talk and how to listen. Uh, it's so important. You know, forget- Just to shove in yeah. one more story before Please we do. Please yes, do. Yes. Because you're emphasizing how short it is. I, uh, when I was doing a keynote for United Airlines, one of the executives, um, we were on, an, uh, we were on a, walking down the hallway together and he goes, I haven't seen the TED Talk. Give me the elevator version. <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's 10 minutes. 
<laughs> Give me the quick summary. Get on a long <laughs> elevator. Get on a 50 floor, 100 floor building, <laughs> and, nope. and then I'll give you the elevator called nine minutes. I love that you just said no. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was uh, like, not doing that. <laughs> God bless you. That is freaking crazy. I know. It's, uh, it's crazy. Celeste. Celeste, you are just, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you are a prophet, and this book yeah. and this message, it's, it's going to be taught in schools eventually so yeah this is this is something i tell kim all the time but she's often about five years ahead of the curve and i think (laughs) you are also five years ahead of the curve in five years everybody's gonna be like we need to do less we need to stop working all the time and we'll be like celeste told you guys you just don't want to listen exactly (laughs) you know celeste you know who i want to get you on whose show i want you to get on take one guess Tim Ferriss. Yes. <laughs> yes, 100%. Yes. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I might have tweeted him a little bit to enroll him in getting you on because that man needs to read this book. <laughs> I, I cannot disagree. I have a few things to say to him. <laughs> I bet you do. Listen. I Absolutely. bet you do. And I, I read Tim Ferriss's book. I read his book so early that he asked me to write a review of it. That's how, yeah, that's how far back it was when I read the book. And it it changed my life in a lot of ways that were really great. Uh, And I really heard that message in your book where you spoke about all of this in service to the what. And what is, you know, just to do more stuff. And that is, you know, potentially something has to be looked at. But, you know, yeah. Tim is amazing because listening to him for 14 years, like he has had his own transformations, especially yeah. in this past year or so. And his uh, vulnerability and honesty about the busyness of him keeping himself busy to not have to be with some of those demons from his past. So I was just so grateful to him that he shared that because there's so many that are doing that. They're keeping themselves busy so they don't have to be with the heart to be with feelings. And I think that could be also part of it, Celeste, is for people to actually contemplate what you're suggesting means that they are going to possibly have to be with some hard to be with feelings. And uh, I want them to trust themselves that you have what it takes to be with them. Don't keep numbing with work. Yeah. Like an addiction at this point. It really is. It is. Literally. Celeste, you're awesome. We'll have you, you back thank if you. you're willing. And Thanks. just thank you for all the time you gave us today and for your incredible work. It's I incredible. I really appreciate it. Thank you so okay. much. Aloha for now. We'll see you soon. Ahui ho. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Well, today was an interesting episode with Celeste Headley, the author of Do Nothing. Uh, She has really begun to kind of infiltrate my day-to-day experience, (laughs) including my iPhone telling me how how long I've been on the phone (laughs) that week. So so I'm happy to say I'm down 60% this week. Wow, that's huge. I think that's huge. I think that's huge. Oh my gosh. Now, it could have been just because I was super busy <laughs> in real work, but but that damn phone to just see a 16% decrease. But the number is still way too high. I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you what my hours per day are. People. <laughs> and yet 
I have to be honest, a lot of it I do use for communication with clients. It's not that I'm on, I'm not really on social media that much. I probably go in and out. I dip in and dip out. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, to be honest, some of my friends express disdain for that because they feel like I never am liking their stuff. <laughs> so what I say to them is, if you send me a picture, I am going to be very happy to see it. But I can't get through everybody's individual pictures yeah. uh, because it's just so hard to do that with uh, the way it's set up. So at the, at the end of this interview with Celeste, we were talking about my hope that maybe Tim Ferriss would consider her as a guest since yeah. he is the king of productivity hacks. Yeah. Uh, and look, he's not the only one. And in fact, we're very shortly after our recording, Lucas, I saw a quote on Twitter by someone whose name I will not say, who is definitely very famous and, you know, Mr. Uh, get it done. And basically the quote was, you know, something to the effect, stop lying to yourself. You can do more. And, you know, one of the things at the end of the interview with Celeste that I said to her is now that she's been seeing and looking and paying attention to where this religion of productivity takes place in our culture, I said to her, you know, you know how they say when you buy a red beetle or, or a bug, you, you suddenly see those everywhere because yeah. now you're honed to it. And I said to her, you know, do you see this now all the time? She said, yes, but that's what it feels like now I'm doing. Yeah, like, it's glaring. I noticed <laughs> I noticed that tweet and I was like, holy crap. And I'm thinking, that is just so not true. So I put out a pretty <laughs> definitive tweet myself, which I'm usually a little bit less kind of in your face, if you will, but I was really mad. And um, so far, the response has been pretty great. Yeah. Uh, however, I think the heart of I, and I put a second tweet to follow that where I said, you know, stop lying to yourself. You actually need rest. You actually need a break. <laughs> um, but I said, look, I understand on one hand, there is uh, this is trying to motivate people, right? And have people not uh, give up or, or, you know, potentially uh, sit back and take it, take it too easy. But the heart of the matter is ultimately what's here is that, we have been conditioned now that I've learned from what Celeste's book says, we now are conditioned to think that not working is somehow uh, bad or yeah. something to be ashamed of or yeah. lazy. Yeah. And I think it's very dangerous. So please, uh, what, what are your I thoughts? Agree. Uh, so many thoughts just came into my mind as, as you were speaking. I was thinking about the social media aspect of, of our world in general right now. And I think Celeste, um, in her book, I don't think we got into it too much in the conversation with her, but yeah. uh, she has a whole chapter about like communicating over email and text message and how that's inefficient and it like truthfully. And also... Um, it made me think of the words communication and community um, and how they, you know, they are, they are one and the same almost. And if you don't, and when you're talking about your friends uh, not getting to their social, but if you send them up or if they send you a picture immediately yeah. or give you a call, it's a totally different experience. Absolutely. And, and I'm just thinking about how we can pare back some of the, you know, the efficient things that we've added to our lives with like, That's right. Uh, these mass communications and pair it back to what it actually is. And it is just that yeah. communication. Um, yeah, but she's, she was amazing. She's, 
she is something else. Uh, she is something else. And, and like so, so down to earth and just fun. So it was such a fun conversation. Yeah, I, 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 it blew me away, and it's been with me nonstop uh, since the call ended. And I, you know, you and I talked uh, after the interview about, you know, <laughs> just what we do to keep the Wall Street coach going and uh, having to reconcile with the truth that she, you know, her book gave to us. So I really hope you guys will consider how to take this concept into your own lives. It has to work for you, you know, and, and look, I'm not an advocate for you feeling guilty, yeah. right? I've been feeling guilty, but I, I don't want to feel guilty. Like that being in a sh is place of shame isn't healthy. Mm -hmm. And even I think if we spoke to her about like, well, how does she balance this? Yeah. Uh, we've been conditioned. So for us to take ourselves from this extreme, we don't want to go to the other extreme uh, and we don't want to feel ashamed either. So I just hope you guys will think about it, find a way to manage the commitment that you have to your trading to your business like realize you are that human being not yeah. a human doing and see where you can uh zig and zag perhaps a little differently uh i hope you enjoyed this episode please give us comments if you want to see more conversations like this uh if there's certain kinds of questions you want us to pose let us know we're looking at the comments obviously and if you guys think we're worthy of a five-star review on uh, iTunes, please give it to us. I know it's a pain in the neck to put a review on, on <laughs> iTunes, but they help the algorithm of getting us out there. And, you know, we're still a little podcast, but we did have Brian Lee's episode bring in a slew more subscribers. I think we doubled in our subscriber base. And that's uh, thanks to all of you new subscribers and uh, loyal subscribers from the back. Hopefully, I think... Uh, you know, over time, more people will talk about this, but ultimately what this is about is it's in service to you guys and the struggles you have. So let us know what those are, what we can take on that's going to help you. And we'll see you on the next Wall Street Coach Podcast. Aloha for now. This has been the Wall Street Coach Podcast with K-Man Curtin. You can find out more about her and her team online at thewallstreetcoach.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.